Hello, and welcome to Macro Minutes. During each episode, we'll be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide high conviction insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures. Uh, Hi, everybody, and welcome to the June 27th edition of Macro Minutes called Groundhog Day. I'm Jason Dahr, your host for today's call, which we're recording at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on June 27th. So the classic film Groundhog Day was all about the same day repeating itself over and over. And this seems like the situation we are in in macro and markets. Policy rates keep going higher, curves are flattening, equities making new highs, and dollar CNY is marching higher. Now, will this cycle continue or will it be short-circuited? That probably depends on what market or country you're talking about. And to provide us with perspective across Canada, US, Europe, equities, and China, we're joined today by myself, Blake Wynn, Lori Calvacina, Peter Shafrick, and Elvin Tan. So to kick off today's discussion, I'll turn it over to Lori on the equity side uh, to tell us if the equity market can continue its impressive run in the face of higher interest rates and an uncertain macro backdrop. All right. Well, thanks, Jason. And I do certainly sympathize with the Groundhog's Day sentiment. I would say it felt like U.S. equities uh, just over the past day and week or so have finally started to react to the idea of another Fed hike or two. Initially, they seem to be shrugging it off. But over the past five days, we have seen the NASDAQ fall about 2.5% versus a decline of about one8 in the S&P 500. So things do seem to be changing just a little bit there. This morning, I thought I would touch base quickly on our U.S. equity market call. I have been seen as one of the more constructive U.S. equity strategist in the eyes of investors, even before we raised our year-end 2023 S&P 500 price target to 4250 about a month ago. At the time, we pointed out that some of our models argued for upside to 4400 4600 and we did hit that 4400 mark rather quickly. Since we did that and sort of traded back down, I will say that some of the indicators I track have started to feel a little bit murkier in the intermediate term. And I want to make it clear, I am not in the bearish camp. Um, I still stand by my models. I still stand by that 4250 and that potential upside to 4400, 4600. But things do feel like they're starting to shift in a, a little bit, you know, just murkier way is the best way to put it. And I just kind of call out four things. First off, looking at our sentiment indicators, we watch the AAII net bullishness indicator very, very closely. It's something that kept us in the constructive camp throughout most of this year because it really was oversold to start the year and at levels that are consistent with a 15, 16% type 12 month forward gain in the U.S. equity market. Uh, what we are seeing now is that indicator is making a beeline back towards worry some territory. Um, It was basically at about 15% on the four-week average in last week's update, and when you get 30%, you want to sell. You're only up about half the time 12 months later with an average gain of about 1%. What we are seeing on that indicator mimics what we're seeing on the weekly CFTC futures positioning data, which looks to be late innings in terms of the recovery and asset manager positioning in S&P 500 e-minis. I will say to the point on tech that I made earlier, NASDAQ futures positioning has been looking extremely stretched, um, and so it's not surprising to me that we're starting to see that trade take a little bit of a breather. Um, Other things that I would just highlight on politics, the 2024 elections had been feeling like an emerging positive for the stock market, but uncertainty does appear to be creeping back in. Biden's disapproval numbers um, have been stabilizing. And we also saw the release of an NBC News poll over the weekend that suggested we're going to see a close contest in both the presidential race and the congressional race next year. 
Um, the third thing I wanted to mention is U.S. equity fund flows are turning positive, despite the fact that we're still seeing money going into bonds. I think this is all about geography. As European flows have weakened, China and emerging markets have weakened. We are seeing strength in Canada and Japan along with the U.S. Now, one thing to flag is that a lot of the strength in the U.S. has been driven by both growth funds and small caps, and those do look like they may be losing a little bit of steam. And then the last point I would just make quickly is on Russia. I think it's really too early to make any major investable conclusions here. One of the things we have flagged is just given our commodity strategies team view that further civil unrest in Russia should be factored into oil price forecasts in the back half of the year. I would keep a very close eye on energy. This is a sector that many generalists had already been poking around over the last couple months. It's cheap. We're seeing a recovery in earnings revision trends. It's got a nice dividend yield, and the geopolitics, I think, are pushing people back there. Did have a nice bounce yesterday. And then the last thing I would say is that this is just, just another thing we can add on our list of murky indicators right now is the geopolitical backdrop, and it's coming at a time when sentiment's looking a little stretched, and we're entering a seasonally challenging period in the equity market. Um, that's it for me, Jason. I'll pass the call back over to you. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Lori. So, you know, in the U.S. bond market, um, you know, it's showing a Fed hike in July, a cut uh, by January, and the curve uh, continues um, to be quite flat uh, currently near uh, cyclical um, lows that we've seen. So over to Blake to tell us uh, his thoughts on uh, these dynamics. Yeah, thanks, Jason. So, you know, I'm I'm always a bit hesitant to say this just because there's always the outstanding uh, possibility of some exogenous risk or some geopolitical event. But I think we're entering into a period with some relative stability in the Fed narrative. Um, the reason I say that is I think a July hike at this point is fairly stable. Um, you know, we're pricing about an 85 percent chance in markets right now of a hike. And I think there's a pretty high bar on uh, the June data, which is going to include a CPI net FP print, to actually not hike at this point. Um, you know, I think it would take something in the neighborhood of a sub 100k NFP or, or, or a you know 0.2 month over month core CPI print to really get any kind of conversation about a pause um, going, or to see that pricing really uh, start to move down closer to to a pause. You know, to that point, we did a, a quick informal survey uh, after the FOMC, and um, you know, just across the respondents that we asked. Even with a 0.2 month-over-month poor CPI print, which would be a miss, you know, about a, only about a quarter of the respondents actually thought that, um, you know, that the odds of a July hike would drop below 30%. So, you know, again, the people we surveyed showing quite a bit of resilience in that July hike expectation. So that's relatively stable. On the other side, I think if we get beats, we get positive data. Um, it's only really going to have a minimal impact on the pricing for September and November. Markets just aren't quite ready yet to add anything beyond July. I think we generally agree with that. You know, we're not adding anything into our forecast. We have a hike in July, and for right now, pause, even though we do think um, it's somewhat of a toss-up beyond that. Our view coming out of the FOMC was the Fed's basically going to be on the lookout for a reason to delay that next hike. We think they hike in July, but then, you know, in the data that comes after that, we'll really be looking at it through somewhat of a dovish lens. Even if the data over the July to September period remains resilient, I think there's a possibility also that the Fed's actually biased to pause in September and establish a quarterly pace. So even if they get that strong data, basically come out in September, pause, reaffirm the June dots that show another hike to set up that November, uh, that November hike and establish this kind of once per quarter pace. If that's true, September or, or even, you know, perhaps more likely November, that's just a lot of potential data and a lot of opportunities for the narrative to, to shift before that second hike is realized. So again, I think it's pretty, you know, the, the, the fact that we're not pricing in that September hike, pretty resilient there. Still, even the possibility of the September-November hike and the fact that we have those two additional 25 hikes in the SEP dots from the Fed, 
I think that's enough to keep cut price pricing at bay as well and keep it at that kind of five to six months forward period. That's also somewhat resilient to near-term data. It's going to take a big accumulation of, of data misses or some you know, large external geopolitical type of catalyst to really get that cut pricing pulled back in. So when you kind of look at all these things, you know, the hike in July, the fact that we're hesitant to price in September, November, and the fact that cut pricing, I think, is held at bay, it means the Fed narrative, at least for the next month or so, you know, I would say probably at least out to the July meeting is quite stable. And I think that means for U.S. rates, we're going to be you know, much more range-bound. And if anything, I think we're going to be more susceptible to, to continue getting pulled around by developments or shifts overseas more so than anything domestically. You know, I would say we would probably recommend playing that range from the, the from the long side, just given that our base case is that yields will eventually move lower by the end of the year as economic data starts to slow, the Fed more definitively be pauses and, and cut pricing does start to, to pull back forward. So that, that shift in the narrative is a ways off. So with that, I'll, I'll pass it back over to you, Jason. Okay, thanks a lot, Blake. Um, now we're going to move on to Canada, and I want to highlight um, a few points. Um, you know, after pausing in January, the Bank of Canada is back on the uh, Groundhog Day cycle for rate hikes. And after their June hike and a hawkish message, they should raise rates again in July. Um, you know, today's CPI print, that was encouraging, but probably not enough to stop them from uh, hiking again, unless all the other data we have uh, coming out between uh, now and the July meeting shows uh, somewhat uh, disastrous uh, downward surprises. Um, they are probably inclined to go in September also, unless the data turns more forcefully. But, you know, as a base case, you know, we have a July hike. We're 50-50 on a hike uh, after July. Um, just because the evolution of inflation and growth does remain uh, highly uncertain. So in general, we do think uh, the market pricing for the Bank of Canada to year-end uh, is fair. But where we disagree is with uh, cross-market Canada-U.S. monetary policy and the path over the coming uh, six months. So the Bank of Canada is priced for about uh, one and a half hikes to January, while the Fed path is basically uh, flat to that point. So both of those are probably not going to be right. So we do like um, you know, possibly receiving Canada uh, January meeting date and paying the U.S. That could make sense. Or equivalently in one-year, one-year space, uh, which has moved a lot uh, due to leveraged uh, clients uh, stopping out. Um, thirdly, the Canada curve has power flattened in the past uh, month alongside repricing from the Bank of Canada. It does look extended. It looks appetizing for steepeners, but uh, some caution is warranted. I would say first, uh, negative carry is quite high. Uh, second, um, the macro side of the equation is not cooperative. Normally, you need rate cuts or strong expectations thereof in the short term uh, to steepen twos, fives, or twos, tens. And with rate cuts not likely for some time, uh, any steepeners in twos, fives, or twos, tens would have to be really tactical and would probably be really uh, short-lived moves. You know, other parts of the curve, they're a little bit more appealing, 530s, 1030s, better places to look for uh, some short-term steepening. Uh, lastly, uh, we have liked duration since late May, especially in the 10-year segment. The 10-year yield that's held below key technical levels at 351, and I am quite happy with how it has digested uh, a hawkish Bank of Canada, a hawkish Fed, and uh, some good data. And we do think the clients will add uh, to duration exposure and the risk reward for the next uh, 25 basis point move uh, is decidedly to the downside uh, in yields. So with that, um, you know, following on the Groundhog Day theme, you know, the market's been repricing uh, the ECB and the Bank of England uh, higher. And to tell us if that makes sense, I'll turn it over to uh, Peter Schaffer. Thank you, Jason. Um, I'll probably start with the ECB, but uh, I think the debate about the UK has probably a little bit more oomph in the market. 
So um, when the ECB met, they actually did what was expected and raised rates by 25 basis points the last time around. But the changes to the underlying staff forecast were the surprise, particularly on the inflation side, which were ramped up quite significantly. Um, and I think that had put the cat amongst the pigeons a bit, because if the ECB expects inflation to be higher, and particularly on their medium-term forecast, they moved their forecast uh, on their medium-term horizon, they moved their forecast away from target by 0.1. That suggests that they probably have a little bit more to do. Um, Lagarde basically told us that they will hike rates again in July. That was what we were expecting anyway. But then the question um, remains, what's going to happen thereafter if inflation is not expected to come down? We think that they will probably have to go again in September, and we have added another 25 basis point rate hike into our profile. That being said, um, the, the market is roughly priced for that now, um, and I think the forward strip uh, up to that point is probably fair. We just had the Sintra Symposium starting today, and most of the speakers have started to really talk out uh, or, or try to talk the market out of the rate cuts that are being priced thereafter. Uh, and frankly, uh, we think that is also one of the taglines that they will take, even if eventually they start to pause. But the risk clearly remains to the upside as far as the ECB is concerned. Now, the flip side of that, um, and that goes to the tactical exposure that Jason just mentioned for other markets as well, is that the growth indicators seem to be turning as well in Europe. So we have the PMI indicators that are coming down. Uh, so we think for, for the time being that uh, going into the summer, um, from a tactical side of view, we probably can trade a little bit lower. The 10-year Bund has been in a range roughly between 2 and 255. And we're now at round about the middle, or a little bit above the middle of 230. Uh, we think we can probably trade down into the lower third. But that's a tactical exposure for us, and we'll have to see how the data develops from there onwards, particularly as long as inflation battles very strongly with um, growth indications, and as long as inflation stays high, it's probably always going to win out. As I was saying, I think more juice is in the UK debate. Um, the UK has extremely high implied rates, and the Bank of England has surprised in the last meeting and hiked 50 basis points. And the question is going to be what comes thereafter. The market is now already expecting um, um, roughly 45 basis points implied for the next meeting. And there's quite a lot being priced in with the peak now seen somewhere between 6 and 6.25, clearly a very high rate. Um, we think that the statement that the Bank of England published alongside the um, rate decision might suggest, um, or the minutes rather, might suggest that they see this as a one-off and there's two data releases between here and the next meeting. And if the data does not really um, moderate much, particularly the inflation data, um, then the risk probably remains to the upside. We think, however, that they try to do and get away with a 25 basis point upside risk, particularly as they probably have shifted up their expectations and, and, and um, the um, surprises against expectations are just so much more difficult. Having said that, however, um, the, the debate about inflation is probably the most acute in the UK. Um, there is going to be more rate hikes to come. The market has repriced that significantly, as I was saying. The curve has flattened very aggressively, um, and we'll, we really have to see whether there is any chance that the data moderates um, before some of that can be priced out. I'll probably leave it at that, but there's clearly more to say about that, and uh, please do follow up with us uh, if you have any interest in that. And with that, over to Jason. Okay, um, excellent uh, insights, Peter. Lastly, we have uh, Alvin Tan to tell us if the uh, Groundhog Day moves in dollar uh, CNY higher uh, can continue. Hello, hi, good morning, everybody. So um, there is considerable 
pessimism about um, China's economy. And, and it's not just about um, the currency. If you look at the equity indices, it's, it's quite clear, too. Uh, the, the CSI 300 index, for example, uh, the Chinese counterpart of the S&P 500, has, has dropped to, to near the lows of the year um, at, at this point. Uh, and it's not just the recent run of disappointing economic data, uh, but also um, I, I think more important is the lack of effective stimulus that's coming through. So the, the problem with the Chinese economy increasingly is that uh, it is suffering from a lack of demand and confidence. And what's been happening lately is the focus uh, remains on monetary policy. So there's been interest rate cuts and, 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 and um, reserve ratio cuts. And, of course, the currency has also been weakening, but these are all monetary measures. Um, and, frankly, I, I think you know, this, uh, the, the consensus is that, that, that these are not enough to revive the so-called animal spirits uh, in, in the economy. But really needs a concerted fiscal stimulus that can affect demand much more directly and, and effectively. But there is still no, um, no indication that the central government is prepared to do so. And as a result, uh, the asset prices in China uh, have continued to be under pressure. And certainly the currency uh, is the one aspect of that. Um, so at this point, the trade-weighted uh, renminbi, uh, or the so-called uh, CFIT, index has dropped some 4% from the high point here. Uh, but, you know, on a more raw picture kind of um, view, it's it really continued its uh, descent from, the, um, from, from, from a year ago, basically. And at this point, the trade-weighted to renminbi index is now below the November 2022 low. And it's currently at 6.5. I think that um, fundamentally, uh, it makes sense for it to go even lower because actually the renminbi retains a lot of the gains from the post-pandemic period. So, for example, um, despite the drop in the trade-weighted renminbi over of the past year, basically, it's still up some 5% from the August 2020 low. And so, for example, if you look at, say, the renminbi versus Japanese yen cross-exchange rate, you know, you can see that the Chinese currency actually has, has done relatively well on a multi-year basis. So I think there is definitely room for the trade-weighted currency to fall further, and, and, and also and more particularly, of course, the dollar CNY exchange rate uh, to move higher in, in, in the next uh, uh, three to six months, uh, for example. So I think I'm, I'm not. I don't believe that the entirety of the renminbi gains uh, from the August 2020 low is going to be reversed. But certainly, I think uh, we we can target 95, which was the last level uh, that we saw. The last time we saw 95 was in the fourth quarter of 2020. And I think that is likely uh, we'll get there uh, sooner or later. Uh, the next, uh, let's say, you know, six to nine months. The the key factor, though, that would definitely turn the currency around, in my view, and again, this is the trade weight of currency, is more decisive stimulus measures, in particular, uh, coming from the fiscal front. Um, I think that it's a dynamic situation for sure, and I think that if the economy continues to weaken further, I think that it's likely to prompt the central government to act more decisively. But at this point, that doesn't seem to be the case. So I think it's going to be more pressure, and certainly the remedy will bear. 
brunt of it uh, from a macro point of view. And um, I will leave it at that. Thank you. Okay, thanks a lot, Alvin, and thank you, everybody, for joining this edition of Macro Minutes. Uh, the narrative in financial markets is fluid, and what we have learned from uh, clients is that conviction levels are low. Uh, something is going to jolt us out of this low-conviction world, so stay tuned to our publications or reach out to us directly for additional insights into what we are thinking. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.